Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we do rejoice. We are the recipients of gifts that are eternal, that we cannot fully understand or conceive, but we praise you for what you've allowed us to understand, what you've revealed in your word of the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the realization that there is no other way but this once-for-all sacrifice, a body offered in the place of ours as sinners, as your enemies by nature, but now rejoicing. Lord, as we consider the truths of which we've sung and read this morning already, we praise you for the grace that is ours in Christ and pray now that as we come to the Word that we will... um, Be prepared, clear our minds, continue to labor, to think and understand your truth. For those who know not Christ, we pray for saving grace, that you would open their eyes and help them to see, even in the text before us today, that there would be a sense of the seriousness of sin and the wonder of Christ's salvation. Lord, we dedicate this time to you and pray that your hand of grace would rest upon this assembly today in this moment. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Physical sacrifice is a key factor in human achievement. Success, victory, invention, these do not come to people relaxing on recliners. Whether it's the world of art or music or politics or business or sports or Whatever it is, physical sacrifice is vital to success. And we see that in story after story. I'll just draw one example from the world of sports. Offensive lineman Mark Schlereth gave his body to succeed in the NFL at the cost of, think of it, 29 surgeries. 20 surgeries on his knees. When he retired at age 35, he admitted that his body had been beaten to a pulp and that he had no more to give to the sport that he so loved. And yet he said this, it was all worth it, every last scratch, because dreams come with a price. No matter what your goal, you're bound to face adversity, he continued, I just happen to be held together by more nuts and bolts than most. I wonder if he had a few screws loose as well. I mean, no disrespect, but 29 surgeries? What sacrifice of the body? But we know that that's just one picture, that we can ratchet that higher. There's greater physical sacrifice paid by those who die in the line of duty such as soldiers in battle or police officers or firefighters. They hope to survive every shift. They hope to survive every battle. But they know they may not, and some do not. But there's yet a greater bodily sacrifice that can be made by those who choose to die to save someone else. They're not planning to come home. They don't think there's a possibility of it. They lay down their life to die for another. I know a pastor whose mother contracted a serious illness when she was pregnant with him. 
And the doctor said, we must take the life of the baby. If we do not take the life of the baby, you will die. And that mother chose in that very difficult moment to say, I will die and give life to my child. I don't know that she had to do that, that that was the right choice that everyone should make, but she willingly made that choice. I will lay down my life for the life of my son. But we're here today and we move even higher than that. We move to the greatest of all physical sacrifices when we consider the incarnation of our Lord for Jesus took on a body that he never had. And he sacrificed it in behalf not of those that he loved, but in behalf of his enemies. He laid down his life knowing what he was doing. Laying it down for those who resisted his rule, who deserved no love from him. But in the upper room on the night of his betrayal, Jesus held the bread and said, This is my body which is given for you. In John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We considered last week in Hebrews 10, verses 1-18, through the revelation that Jesus gave His body to die in our place once for all, so that no other sacrifice is ever needed or even ever possible for sin. In doing this, Jesus fulfilled the old covenant sacrificial system. And today I'd like to go back to that text. We kind of did a fast overview of those 18 verses last week. This week I'd like to come back and look more carefully at verses 5 and following, which we considered, again, just briefly last week, but to look at it from the theme of the incarnation of our Savior, as we, are, as we typically do at this time of year, uniquely. But Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5, we read there, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, I'd like to land on that phrase for a while. We'll work through this fairly slowly. But he came into the world. That phrase speaks of the incarnation of the second person of the triune being. Said more simply, it refers to the birth and the earthly ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. We might not recognize, and we see, for instance, in the the writings of the Apostle John, that the Apostle repeatedly uses this very phrase in his Gospel with messianic significance. Think of these three examples. In the first chapter, we know where he speaks of the coming of Christ. He speaks of Jesus as the light that was coming into the world. As we go further into the text, in chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people, and they say this, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So here, even the common people using that phrase of the one coming into the world. And then we find it in John 11 where Martha Bethany confesses to Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ. That's the word, the anointed one, the Hebrew Messiah. I believe this. Notice how she thinks of Messiah. You're the Son of God who is coming into the world. So this phrase, coming into the world, is formulaic. It is a reference to Jesus' earthly ministry to save God's people 
from the judgment due their sin, the mission of the Messiah. And the people use that phrase in this way. So when the author of Hebrews uses it, we know that it's very full of messianic content. This Christ, this anointed one, this Messiah was coming into the world. And when he did come into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. He said. Why are we going to sit on that? He said. There's a lot happening here. He quotes Psalm 40, which was penned by King David. Yet the writer of Hebrews, you notice it here, he just seamlessly puts the poetry of David into the mouth of Jesus. When he came into the world, when Messiah took on flesh and came into the world, he said what David has written. So we witness here again that what the Bible says, God says. The pre-incarnate Christ spoke as a member of the triune being through David's sacred text. Then coming to earth and taking on human flesh, Jesus speaks the words that David wrote with a meaning that fulfills their very message. So in a sense, we kind of listen in here as the Son speaks to the Father. What does the Psalm say? What does Jesus, the Messiah, say as he comes to save people from their sins? Continuing in verse 5, this messianic one coming into the world says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. David makes two points in his prayer. The first is a statement of fact, and the second is David's response to that statement with a statement of commitment. So let's put them out here in the slide this way. God is not satisfied with animal sacrifices. He desires a tender heart that is pleased to honor him by obeying his word. That's just a paraphrase of what David is saying. And as he says this, he is reflecting here a pervasive theme in the Old Testament. He's not saying anything unique here, but just remembering this reality that God is not ultimately pleased with animal sacrifices. We see this, for instance, in 1 Samuel 15.22, where Samuel says to King Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. I mean, in offering these sacrifices, they were obeying the voice of God. He's not saying that they are evil in themselves, but there's something greater than the sacrifice, the act of sacrificing an animal for the forgiveness of sin, the covering of sin. There's something more important, and that is the obedience of the heart. God is more interested in the the heart. He said, Hosea 6.6 says, For I desire, God speaking, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And we could stack on these two examples, many others, making this very same point, and coming back to David's psalm, that's all he's saying. 
is that God does not ultimately desire animal sacrifices, a point the Bible makes again and again. But this is followed then in Psalm 20, in David's psalm, with this statement of commitment, the statement of fact followed by the statement of commitment. I then come to you, Lord, not with animal sacrifices, but with ears open to hear your word and with a heart that longs to do your will. That's the essence of the psalm. You're not satisfied with animal sacrifices. You desire a tender heart, and so I come to you with tender heart, with ears open to hear your word, and a will that is oriented to doing what you would call your people to do. It's pretty straightforward. But as we look at the use of Psalm 40 by the author of Hebrews, it's not so straightforward. We'll untangle some of that as we get into the incarnation of Christ. But how does the, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews use Psalm 40? First of all, we've got to deal with the translation. If you were paying careful attention, you may have noticed that verse 5b, a body have you prepared for me, does not seem to fit the statement of commitment that I put out there here in number 2. I've talked here, number two, of ears open to hear your word, where what we find here in the text in Hebrews is something a little different, isn't it? A body you have prepared for me. I'll we'll lay it out this way as we look into this, like what is happening here. The ESV, ESV translates Psalm 40 in verse 6, you have given me an open ear. That's a, a free translation that's on track. The Hebrew Bible literally reads, ears you have dug for me. Now that doesn't work so well for us. What on earth does that mean, that you've dug my ears? It doesn't say you dig my ears, okay? <laughs> it says that you have dug ears for me. In Hebrews 10, the translation of this passage is, a body you have prepared for me. What's going on? What do we got going here? I mean, first of all, in the ESV translation, they're trying to help us out because that's the sense of it. You've given me an open ear to your word. But the Hebrew and the translation we find in the book of Hebrews is really quite different, it, would, it might seem, at first blush. Well, what does it mean to dig someone's ears? I mean, Parents probably know that, maybe especially moms, what it means to dig out the kid's ears. That's not the point. It's not to get clean ears. But the idea is a Hebraic way of speaking of creation. Remember God forming Adam out of the dust of the earth, in a sense, out of the clay of the earth? And it's like he takes his fingers and just bores a hole into the ears of Adam. It's, it's not a figure that we use, a concept that we use, but you see the point of it. It's like God in it, and this is just figuratively speaking, but it's as if God just took his finger and bore a hole where Adam would hear the words of the Lord. But that idea then of digging the ear came to be used figuratively of listening well and heeding so we might use the word, listen up. We don't ever think about what's up. You just say it, just listen up. We know what that means. Or open your ears. Well, ears don't have flaps. They don't have doors. 
Sometimes you wonder when you're talking to somebody if they might not, but uh, they don't. They're just there. They hear. They don't hear. They're just ears. But we speak of that, open your ears. Or we may think of the famous line in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar where Mark Antony in the eulogy for Caesar says, some of you could quote it, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Nobody's thinking, he's thinking, like, take them off your head and hand them to me, right? We, do, we use these different phrases for how to understand what we are perceiving, what we're hearing. So what David is saying is, Lord, you have sovereignly opened my spiritual ears to hear your word and to heed your will. So David commits to do God's will as the prophecies about him at his anointing predicted. This man after God's own heart. My ears are open. I am hearing your word. I'm perceiving what you desire of me. And I will do it. So there's the translation. But what about the interpretation here? It doesn't say, my ears are open to hear your word. It says, you've prepared a body for me. Well, what's happening here is that the author is quoting from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. He's not quoting from the Hebrew Bible, but the translation in Greek. The translation in the Greek says, a body you have prepared for me. Is that fair? Is that a good translation? It's a free translation, certainly, but I think it is a fair translation of the Hebrew text. We'll get into that in a moment, but first of all, it might just be to help people not be confused. It's very Hebrew in its orientation, you dug ears for me, but maybe a Greek reader isn't going to understand that. We have an example of this in our ESV. The translation of Amos 4.6 is, I gave you cleanness of teeth. What does that mean? Cleanness of teeth. I mean, we hear that, and it just I mean, I brush my teeth. I've got a clean mouth. feels fresh. What does cleanness of teeth mean? It means you're not eating, right? So the NIV translates that same phrase, cleanness of teeth, as an empty stomach. Is that a fair translation? Well, it's not very accurate to what the text actually says, but that's exactly the idea. Cleanness of teeth doesn't mean you're minty fresh with your teeth. It means your stomach's got nothing to digest. Perhaps the translators of the Greek Septuagint thought, ears you have dug for me would confuse Greek readers, so they translated a body you have prepared for me. But more likely, they took the reference to ears as a part for the whole. Anybody that's got ears has got a body. And that's the point. So we say, apart for the whole, I might ask a friend, can I have your keys? Can I get your keys? And they know what I mean is I want to drive your car. I don't really just really want the keys. I want to drive the car. I'm asking for permission to drive the cars, but I might just say, can I get your keys? It's apart for the whole. Here, the ears are apart for the whole. The body 
And so the Greek translators fairly, rightly translated, a body you have given to me. Now whatever's going on with the translation and all of these pieces that are there that really kind of lie under the surface to us in our English translations, this devotional meditation of David in Psalm 40 is fulfilled in Jesus who had ears and who had a body. The author is comparing animal sacrifices, which are wholly inadequate to clear the conscience or atone for sin, and he's comparing those sacrifices with the body of Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice. And what is Christ's mission? Verse 5, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. That mission includes a body. The body of Jesus was utterly essential to his mission to save his people from their sins. The wages of sin is death. And after that, the judgment. We're not free to sin as we please. We're not free to break the law of God. When we lie, when we deceive, when we gossip, when we put ourselves before others, when we lust or explode in anger, when we seethe with bitterness or falsely accuse, when we fail our number one responsibility to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, such sin renders us subject to the penalty of death. The only legitimate sacrifice that can stand in our place to provide full forgiveness of sin is a man in flesh. One with a body like ours, who is also eternal, so as to satisfy the eternal cost of our sin before an eternal God. To pay that penalty... Jesus had to take on a body. He had to take on flesh to pay the penalty for all who will trust Him for salvation. The physical body of Christ was sacrificed to win our redemption, meaning that the doctrine of the incarnation is essential to our salvation. Some have doubted this through the years. We should not doubt it. It's utterly necessary. It's evidenced very clearly in the Apostle John's adamant defense of Christ's true humanity. A body. John writes in his first epistle, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Now notice how he speaks of Christ as he introduces Christ in this chapter. We have seen with our eyes. We looked upon and have touched with our hands. Concerning the word of life, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. We have even touched him with our hands. Not a phantom. He had a body. Second John 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. That just in case there's any question what he thought about that. And this is, this is not pulling punches. This is being really direct. Someone who denies the physical existence of Christ in human form 
is an, is an antichrist. When we think of the birth of Jesus, we're right to think of the beauty of that event, of the wonder of God's election of weak and common people, of the joyous singing of angels, of the heralding of the excited shepherds that spring night. But let us not forget that our eternal salvation depends upon Christ taking on flesh in order to sacrifice His life for His spiritual enemies. A body. And there is secondly, a mission. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in the book of the scroll, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. You see in verse 8 the exegetical development of that statement back from uh, back in Psalm 40. Verse 8, when he said above, when he says in Psalm 40, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices, offerings, and burnt offerings, and sin offerings, pretty much covering the whole offering system. And they're offered according to the law of Moses. Then he added, so he's saying that you've not desired in some sense these sacrifices. Then he goes on in Psalm 40 to say, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. This is a very subtle reading of the Hebrew text. What the author is drawing from that psalm is to say the disparagement of sacrifices indicates that they're not perfect. That they're not utterly complete. But in the place of those sacrifices, a body is given and is offered. I will do your will is the message that continues forward. Everything hinges on Christ's willingness to do the Father's will. The first and the second here should be obvious to us at this point. The first is the Old Covenant. The second is established by the giving and sacrifice of the body of Christ. In verses 5-7 through seven, then, as I mentioned earlier, we overhear, as it were, the Son saying to the Father, I have come into the world in human flesh with a body in order to do your will. This was a consistent theme of Jesus' earthly ministry, as Apostle John again emphasizes. In John 4, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. I am here to do the will of the Father. In John 6, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And at the end of his life, as he prays to the Father and speaks of the glory that he once had and will now soon have as he is reunited with the Father through resurrection, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He came into the world with a body. He came into the world to do with that body what God willed, what God chose. Oh, that glorious, yet hard, hard will. We have to see this, it seems, almost against the backdrop of a dark olive garden 
on the Mount of Olives just east of Jerusalem. It's the middle of a spring night and there our Savior agonizes in prayer before the Father as He contemplates what it will mean to sacrifice His body in the place of sinners. What does He pray? Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. This is Your will. Is there any way other than this? He anticipates the agonizing separation from the Father as all the sins of His people are pinned on Him. And He goes to the cross in excruciating pain. The physical pain of a body turned over to its persecutors and sacrificed. But that deeper pain of separation from His Father, in that excruciating moment as He thinks on that reality, He says, Father, if you're willing, I ask that you would remove this cup from me. But where does he conclude? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And what was that will? What was that mission as he came in physical form, as he took on a body? By that will, verse 10 says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That body was laid down in sacrifice for us as God's people. It was given in our place. Doing the will of the Father meant sacrificing His body in our place to pay the penalty of death that our sins deserved. There's a lot of ways to die in this world There is nothing that is more gracious, more life-sustaining. There is no greater story than Jesus Christ who took on a body and suffered a torturous death, making the ultimate sacrifice to rescue His enemies from judgment. And that is every one of us who has come to trust in Christ as Savior. For all who will come to trust in Christ as Savior... We were his enemies. He gave his body for us. What did young Mary know of all this? When she stroked the head and kissed the cheeks of the infant Jesus, what did she know of all this? As she fed and nourished her infant son, did she have any idea what bodily sacrifice he would one day make? as she tenderly cared for that body, did she know? When that day came, as the prophet foretold, her soul was pierced through with the horrific pain of Christ's sacrificial death on a Roman cross. How much of that she understood, we don't fully know. But she was understanding more and more as the hours passed. That the body that came so uniquely, so miraculously, so once and never again had been raised and come to manhood and now was hanging on a Roman cross as a sacrifice for sin. His body offered up to save our bodies from judgment 
and to form us into this body as his followers. What grace is this? And may each of us then embrace this saving grace. May each of us who does consider our lives of little account. Our bodies are to be protected. They are a stewardship that is given to us from God, but they are not to be preserved at all cost. They are to be put into the work of God and given up to do His will, whatever that means. For some, that means to give their lives for the cause of Christ. For others, it might mean hardly more than a lack of sleep now and then. Being in a place you might not choose. Going somewhere you might not want to go. Or speaking a word that may be difficult. But brothers and sisters, our bodies were given to us as an instrument to put into the use that God would have us perform in this world. To give our lives for His cause. May each of us then embrace this grace and may each of us who does consider that our lives are of little account. May we be willing to spend and to be spent body and soul for the glory of His name. And let us say, my ears are open to Your Word. My body belongs to You. I am anxious to heed Your Word. I am anxious to fulfill Your Word. Not my will, but Yours be done. This our Savior demonstrated to us. And we can live this way only because of the sacrifice that He made. That once for all, dying in our place to pay the cost and judgment of our sin. Which puts everything in perspective. It teaches us what a body is for. It teaches us whose will is supreme. It prepares us to realize that this world is passing away and our time here is brief. But there is an eternal reward for God's people. I read this morning Revelation 20, 21, 22. What joys await because of the one who left the splendors of heaven to take on a body so that we could join him there in a new heaven, in a new earth, in the end. Let us thank him as we pray. Father, we are grateful for what you've done for us in Christ. We're just we're awed by the message of salvation that is in his name, by the necessity of the blood that was shed. When we come to terms with our sin, we know it was necessary. But we thank you for that act of sacrifice, that death in our place. To know that when we hear of stories of a mom giving her life for her unborn child or of a soldier dying in battle to protect freedom or of someone who in some way gives their life for others to know that we are the recipients of the greatest sacrifice that has ever been made. Lord, teach our hearts to trust, to love, 
to hold loosely to this life and to know that because of the Lord Jesus Christ who left the kingdom to take on a body, that we will, by your grace, worship the King of kings and Lord of lords in an eternal kingdom. Give us faith to know, to trust, to believe. And I pray that by your mercy and your grace that you would deepen us in the truth of the gospel and draw to Christ as Savior those who do not yet know him, we pray in his name. Amen.